0: What's up everyone and welcome to The Corporate Bartender. Today's show is fantastic. We are so excited to have Bob Colehep on the program. If you don't know Bob, it's a good thing you're here. Bob Kolhep joined Cintas Corporation in July 1967 as the controller. Over a span of 50 years with Cintas, he did an iconic thing and worked his way up to the top, ultimately reaching the CEO slot. He then went on to serve as chairman of the board of CentOS until retiring in 2016. Bob's also the author of the new book, Building a Better Organization. And today we're going to talk about culture, about engagement, and about what it takes to be a great leader. Bob's one of those guys who's been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and even wrote the book on it. I think you're going to love this one. So buckle up, TC beers, grab your favorite cocktail, and let's get right on into it with Bob Colehep on today's T. C,
1: B. Welcome to Sky Team's The Corporate Bartender, where we gather
0: some of the best HR and people leaders to discuss what's happening on the people side of business. Now pull up a stool, belly up to the bar, and join us for
1: The Corporate Bartender.
0: Well, Lori, what do you think? Should we get going here?
2: Let's do it.
0: Let's do it. Welcome, everybody. It is so good to see each and every one of you. It's Wednesday. It's my favorite day. It's Corporate Bartender Day. Here we are. 8th of December. I don't even know how many more shows we're going to do this year because of the holidays and everything. We got to get that worked out. Mm -hmm. But it is episode number 112. We've been here, been doing this a long time. Thank you. Each of you for coming back today. Today we're gonna do we're gonna do what we do. Um, we we're gonna open it up. We've got a new person here, so she's already been prepped to expect to be grilled with the three questions. We're gonna talk about a couple of news items and get on into our interview with former CentOS CEO and author of Building a Better Organization, Robert Culhep. Let's give Robert a good TCB welcome, shall we? Yeah. Say hey to everybody, Bob. Hi, everyone. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us today. It's going to be a good day. Lori, why don't you uh, put Courtney in the hot seat?
2: Yeah, let's do it. Courtney. Courtney Seeley is joining us today. Uh, We always ask, um, what do we ask, Eric? What do you do?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And take two. Courtney, welcome to the bartender. We want you to tell us who you are, what you do, and one boring fact about yourself.
3: Oh, okay. Well, that's fairly easy. If I can't knock this out of the park, there's something a little special about me. So, I'm Cordy Seeley. I'm in uh, Greenwood Village, Colorado, south of Denver. Um, Mom to two middle school boys, so that's a lot of fun right now. I'm sort of saying that with some sarcasm. What? I have have two um, male dogs, so I'm surrounded um, everywhere I look by boys and men. Uh, I am an attorney. I currently um, serve as the head of legal operations for a global beer company, and I'll shortly be moving over to serve as the chief legal officer of Cable Labs. So I know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and a boring fact about me is I think the same thing as what I do. I'm a lawyer. So <laughs> <laughs> we,
0: we will, we'll try to keep, let keep David from making too many lawyer jokes. I know it's a ripe <laughs> opportunity. <laughs>
3: yeah. So, so there you go. Uh, if, if there's anything else you, you'd like me to share, just shout. Otherwise, thanks for having me.
0: No. Awesome. Thank you, Courtney. Thanks, thanks Courtney. for being here. All right, Uh, just a reminder, this link should work now. TCB merch, we're going to start doing merch. I'll figure that out over the holidays, but you can go to that link right there, skyteam.cloud forward slash TCB merch, and we'll get your order on file. Um, Morag, I did get an order from Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob wants a TCB t-shirt. Well, so so do I. I
3: get mine first. You do.
1: (laughs) And then Dr. Bob can wear his when he comes on People First next year. Yes, Yes. excellent cross after maybe it could be one of those crossover reality shows you should
0: come on people <laughs> first and help me interview dr bob and i'll wear a work made fun gets done t-shirt <laughs> okay <laughs> awesome all right just a couple of news items today before we get into our conversation with bob colehap um Lori, i'm gonna let you take this first one because you sent it to me this morning and i could hear the sigh of exasperation in your voice
2: Yeah. So there's this, um, (laughs) we kind of are continuously going around and around the conversation Mm -hmm. of how do you comply with a perpetually moving target? Um, should we even try anymore? (laughs) Should we just do our own thing? So this, you know, this was uh, something that happened, I believe yesterday that, um, The federal contractor mandate that we've talked about, um, has now been blocked by a federal judge in Georgia. So that giant press pause button has happened there. As we know, the OSHA emergency temporary standard, um, was blocked, I don't know, 30 seconds after it came out. So, (laughs) you know, big old giant pause button on that one as well. And, um, so, you know, just from my own experience at cable labs, we're, in the process of identifying a tracking mechanism and an app essentially so that we can begin to to track vaccination status or testing, uh, negative testing documentation, that sort of thing, which we decided to do as a company policy, regardless of these, um, standards. But once again, just, you know, par for the course that one step forward, two steps back, um, you know, the, this is up in the air again, so we'll be interesting, what, what this turns into at this point. So I don't know, are are any, is anyone else subject to the federal mandate either for employers, right? That that's still in place. If you're a federal employer, they have the vaccine mandate that doesn't allow for a testing option. Is anybody else subject to the um, contractor side of that mandate? Looks
0: like, looks like Reb is.
1: Yeah, we got, we got the word today that this judge put an injunction so we're on hold and we're trying to figure that out so what that means we were scrambling so
2: yeah it's it's really this weird space to be in because you you put these pretty significant things in place and then the Compliance part of it that you were leaning on to communicate that and get buy-in <laughs> from your employees—it's like somebody just pulled that rug right out from under right. you. Uh, so I, you know, g- good luck.
0: <laughs> but, you know, thanks, Lori. Yeah. We, yeah, we did. We did have somebody, you know, today that said, "Oh, I don't need a, a an accommodation anymore because now it's not going to be law." So I'm like, "Lovely,
3: great, right. oh
2: so, yeah." I, yeah, I've had that come up where somebody asked about the um, accommodation process. And when I reiterated that vaccination was not a condition of employment under our policy and our situation, then, oh, never mind. <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting. Sure. I like
0: I- I like Reb's background because is where his head is. I can't tell if it says it can be done or it can't be done. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Fill in the oh okay.
0: <laughs> but I think he's positioned himself so that way he he's got a choice. You can go either way.
2: <laughs> you can somehow put a like a red Sharpie. You can add the T in there if you need Just to. Just write it on your
0: forehead. Right on your forehead, <laughs> yeah, That's what you should do. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Laurie, for keeping us up to date. Um the second article today is around culture, and that's that's one of Bob's areas of focus. So I wanted to talk a little bit about culture and crisis because that's kind of what we're doing. um the The core of this article, it's called Building a Culture that can stand Stand a crisis." And it's actually part of a series on HBR right now. um, some pretty compelling stuff in there. It boils down to uh, they took a look at at the humanitarian community in West Africa during the Ebola epidemic to see how those organizations held together and which ones were more successful or, or less successful. And, uh, basically <laughs> it comes down to more. I go love this. It comes down to relationships, you know, and that's the focus that we put everything through in the work we do here at Sky team. It's all about the quality and depth of the relationships you have at work. And, in in this, uh, this writer, Alice Lauer was her name. Um, This is the central piece to cultures that can withstand crisis, having trusting relationships between employees and local communities, especially in the case of this Ebola ravaged region. um, But they help organizations anticipate crises in ways that competitors that don't have those trusting and trusted connections don't. They just don't anticipate things in the same way. And they also uh, double down on resilience, you know, and this this goes along uh, with all of the research that we've done about workplace relationships. The more I know, trust, and like you, the more apt I am to look out for you and your well-being, um, and the more we are collectively resilient. So I thought it was an interesting take, you know, looking at, you know, we talk about living in, in crisis times all the time, but, you know... It, as hard as it is here, we still pale in comparison to living in an Ebola-ravaged West Africa. Um, so I thought some of those learning points were really interesting. I don't know. Lori, did you did you have a chance to take a look at that one?
2: I didn't. Um, but it just, I mean, th- that central theme about relationships and high trust Right, that that's the soapbox that we stand on all the time. The you know, if you can create high trust relationships, that is going to accelerate and highlight every other competency you have as a leader um, or as an influencer in an organization. Right, and that that granting of grace that also comes with. (laughs) high trust relationships, right. That, that we're able to, uh, bring humanity and all of our faults and missteps into the equation in a way that has some compassion around it before just the hammer of judgment, right. (laughs) All, All of those things, um, in high stress situations, um, are so critical, especially life and death, high stress situations, not, which strategic direction should we move, but how do we keep people from dying? <laughs> That's significant, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting. Ruby and I were doing a workshop today and we were talking about, you know, just the, the preferences and tendencies that we have as human beings, um, you know, thinking about it in this cultural lens. And how under times of stress or pressure, we tend to double down on the things that come easiest to us and most natural. And if we're not, if we're not flexing to meet other people where they are, especially as leaders in an organization, you know, it's an opportunity missed a, uh, but it's, it's poking holes in the bottom of our culture, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's putting, putting us at risk. So culture, it's a good transition. We're going to uh, shift on in. And welcome, Bob Kolhep, here to the bartender. Um, Bob Bob's been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and wrote the book about it. He he started with Cintas Corporation back in 1967 as a controller, and he spent over 50 years there, working his way all the way up to CEO and board chair before before taking on a a lovely place in Naples, Florida, where he could write his book and do his thing. Um, he's <laughs> He's written a book called Building a Better Organization. And you can find out all the information about him and about the book at his website, robertcolhep.com. So, with that, let's welcome Bob to the show. Give him a round of applause, everybody. Thank you.
4: Thank you.
0: All right. Well, hey, Bob. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Um, tell us a little bit about your leadership journey. You did one of the things that is like a a textbook thing. You started in an organization and you worked your way up to the top of that organization and you learned a ton along the way. Tell us a little bit about that journey.
4: Well, uh, I started in 1967 as controller and, uh, then I was promoted to, uh, vice president of finance, then, uh, executive vice president, 19, uh, 84, president and uh, chief operating officer, 95, CEO, 2003, vice chairman, and 2008 or nine, chairman of the board, um, people asked me, uh, how, how did you do that? And I said, well, I, I did it with hard work. I did it with uh, hitting my objectives and goals almost all the time. But I also say, I, I always had my hand up. And by that, I mean, whenever, when something uh, needed to be done and we'd sit in an executive committee meeting and say, well, who's going to do that? I'd always go like this, raise my <laughs> hand. And they'd give it to me. And uh, fortunately, I didn't, wasn't successful every time, but, but most of the time. And as a result of that, I learned, I had a, I had a broad understanding of the organization. Uh, I had a reputation of somebody who gets things done. And uh, when the job opened up, I was the guy they, uh, the, the founder thought of to, to take it on. And so I think uh, I always tell people, always have your hand up. When my kids graduated from college, I sat down and I said, I want you to be the first one in the, in the office, and I want you to be the last one to leave, because that's what I did. And uh, I think when you do that and you accomplish things, and, uh, but you, know, to touch on uh, Eric, something you talked about, I you was know, just thinking as you were talking, In the first seven, eight years of my tenure at Cintas, I was probably offered seven or eight jobs in those seven or eight years because I began to develop a reputation. And in some cases, people would say to me, well, triple your salary. Mm
1: -hmm.
4: And I said to them, "I, I, I wouldn't, you could make my salary 10 times what it is. I wouldn't leave. And they'd say, why? And I said, because I have a special relationship with the founder of the company. He was my mentor. He taught me a great deal. I trust him. We have a great organization. Why would I leave it? I'm not going to leave it. And it's, uh, that was the, the relationship is what kept me at CentOS. It wasn't the money early on, especially. Then after I was there about 10 years, I think everybody just gave up trying to hire me away. <laughs> they, they knew I wouldn't leave. But you're, you're absolutely right. The, those kinds of relationships... Are, are critical, they have to be developed, uh, they're developed with honesty and integrity and straight shooting, uh, they're, they're developed with uh, the boss listening to their subordinates, respecting their subordinates, soliciting their opinions, making people feel like they're part of the company from the standpoint of running the company, that people want to know what they think, um, and uh, it, it was it was a great 50 years that I had with CentOS and I feel very blessed to be able to, to be part of it.
0: That's fantastic. Um, you know, you, you talk about building relationships and, and I love the story of the power of that one relationship outweighed all the financial incentives people could put in front of you. How did you, how do you go about developing relationships of that, of that depth and complexity?
4: Well, I think it's done with regular communication. Uh, it's done with uh, being uh uh, sort of having an open-door policy, letting people know that, hey, if you want to talk to me about something, don't hesitate to, to come in and talk to me about it. Uh, it's done with uh, being someone you can count on. You know, when when I, when I said we're going to have a meeting at 3 o'clock, I expected everybody to be there. I expected everybody to be there. I sure as heck better have been there on time and be there at 3 o'clock, too. And so I think it's just being somebody that people can count on. Uh, being somebody that people feel they can learn from. Uh, I I was so blessed to have Dick Farmer as a mentor. And I was so pleased when I retired in 2016, I literally got 500 letters from people in the company reminding me of something, some impact I had on their career and their performance. I felt better about that than anything else. the, The money I made and all that sort of thing to think that I really had that kind of an impact on people. And when, when I think people feel like, gee, I'm working for somebody who cares about me, somebody who wants to make me better, that doesn't mean there isn't some tough love along the way. There has to be, um, and I got some too. Uh, <laughs> but I think once people realize that, you know, when you say tough things to them, you're not going to be a jerk, you're doing it to make them better and that you care about them. And I think you can't lead people if you don't care about the people you're leading. And so uh, I think if you do that and people sense that you're that way, they recognize that most organizations aren't that way. Too many companies consider employees just a necessary evil. And uh, having to deal with people is a pain in the rear end. (laughs) You just can't, you can't look at it that way. And I think uh, that's kind of relationship I had with uh, the person I work for and the founder of the company and it's kind of relationship I tried to have with all the people who work for me too.
0: I love what you said there. Um, It it makes me think about this framework that we, we have that was written in Morag's first book called cultivate the power of winning relationships. And it's about this notion of, of being an ally or showing up as an ally. And uh, you know, it's this idea that they uh, allies tell us what we need to hear, not just what we want to hear to your point, even, even when the love is tough, but you know, wouldn't you rather know that you have toilet paper stuck to your shoe when you come out of the bathroom or have everybody talk about it because they will. Right. But, but it's tough to tell the boss that he's got toilet paper stuck to his shoe because there's some risk and some vulnerability required from a leadership perspective. What would you say to employees lower down the stack about that type of up chain feedback? How, how do they get comfortable giving that to somebody Uh, who, if they take a misstep, could they could perceive uh, as a career-limiting move?
4: Well, it certainly takes some gumption, but I really think what's most important is that the people at the top create an environment where it's okay to challenge the boss. When I was CEO in our executive committee meetings, I'd say it's, it's okay to say, hey, Bob, I don't think we ought to do that. I'm not going to get mad at you. Uh, because we would always focus on, we had lots of sayings that says us. One of them was, "We don't care who is right; all we care about is what is right." And therefore, I used to say, "The janitor can have a better idea than me? As long as I create the environment where the janitor is willing to speak up, and when the janitor speaks up, I listen to him." And when, if you do that, and and people see that that's the way you operate, they become very comfortable with it. So I think it's far more incumbent upon the people to top, to create that safe environment for people to speak up. Because if you don't, they won't, they're, they're not sure what the consequences are going to be. And so they're not going to take the chance.
2: And and that I, I love what you said about <clears throat> creating the environment. It has to be explicit, right? Because I think a lot of times leaders generally feel open to that like sure i'd be happy to hear feedback from from people and take in those considerations but they're not actively asking for feedback they're not actively saying please tell me what you think right they're assuming well people will speak up if they if they want and That is a poor uh, assumption (laughs) to make because people experience those power differentials. And so to your point, it's, it's more than just feeling like that's the right thing to do. It's actually articulating that that is what is desired. And you have to do that over and over and over and give people examples of when that actually came to fruition. Right. It wasn't my idea. It was somebody else's idea that was the right thing to do. Exactly. Yeah, that. In
4: fact, in fact, if even I, I used to try to I, I coached a fellow one time as one of the motivations I had to write this book, and he was very directive. Uh, he was to always tell him somebody come into his office say, I, well, I have a problem. What do you think I should do? And he would say, do this, do this, do this, do this. And his name was, it happened to be Eric. And I said, Eric, I want you to try something. I said, the next time you somebody comes in your office and says that, I want you to say, Well, what do you think we should do? And I said, now, the reason I want you to do that is when you are so directive and telling people what to do, you are cutting off input from the people who work for you, because when they know you're going to sit in there and say, do one, two, three, four, five, and get out of my office, uh, there, you don't hear what they think. And, Mm -hmm. and if you heard what they think, you might come to a different conclusion. Mm -hmm. I said, the second reason to do it is, and he said, I said, he said, well, what do I do? What do I do if. They don't have a suggestion as to what to do. He said, should I tell them what to do then? I said, no, what I want you to do is I want you to say, well, let's think about what are our options. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: We could do this or we could do this or we could do this. And if the third thing is what you know you really need to do, when they get to the third thing, you should say, that's a great idea, Pete. Let's do that. (laughs) Because, Because if they think it's their idea, they're going to be far more committed to it than if you dictate to them what to do. Oh. oh, preach, Bob. Preach. Okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, and then, I mean, how, how good does that feel that you had the idea, right? As, as that person walking out of the office to say, oh, huh, I nailed that. And then that builds that confidence that builds that you know, okay, so that's how I should approach it. I'll think of these options and I'll process, and I won't wait to be told. I'll, you know, so it, it everybody wins <laughs> in, those, exactly. in those situations.
4: Exactly, yeah. and and you know what? He he tried that two or three times, and he called me up and he said, "You know what, Cole, that that really works."
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And, he,
4: and his whole approach changed.
2: That's great.
0: I love it. I, I love it. I love it. I love the uh, the notion of creating this environment. It made me think of something. That Ruby says to people that she's coaching, I watch her face right now. She's like, what, what do I say? (laughs) Um, I've, I've heard her say this to a couple of executives and it just rings true to Lori's point without making these things explicit. Ruby says the further up the food chain you get, the less honest people will be with you. The less likely they are to tell you the truth. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely.
4: Even I would say from the top down too, my, I used to teach this to my people too. I said, if you want to know what's going on, don't ask management. Ask the people doing the work. <laughs> That's right. Okay. We had, for example, we had a 13 week training program for our service salesmen. These are the people that, uh, service salespeople who, who drive our trucks and interface with the customer. And I'd go visit a plant and I'd find oh, this fellow's just been with us for four months. And I would say to him, well, tell me about your training. How long did it last? And, and you know, because management will always tell you the way <laughs> they think it should be. Okay. Or the way they, they, they believe it is <laughs> the way they want the it to way, be. <laughs> the only way you find out the way it really is, is talk to the frontline people. And that's one of the things we preach at our company is when you have a problem, go talk to the people doing the work. And one of my famous lines that I repeated many thousands, tens of thousands of times is the answer is never in your office. (laughs) If you have a problem, go see your customers, go talk to your employees, and you will find out what the problem is and probably find out how to fix it. But if you think you're going to find it out in some meeting or sitting in your office reading reports, you're dead wrong. Mm -hmm.
0: I love that. The answer is never in your office. I can see that on a t-shirt. Maybe we should put do one of those for the birthday.
2: So so Yeah.
0: Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Laurie.
2: I was just going to say it reminds me of uh, when uh Phil, our our CEO at Cable Labs talked about when he worked for HP, he would spend Saturdays in Best Buy just hovering around the laptops and watching customers and when they didn't pick HP, he would say hey, tell me about your choice points here in in what you decided to do. Um, Because that was the honest, real truth of why people were choosing things. And he said, I found out so much more by doing that than waiting for things to trickle up through seven layers of reports and and such that didn't tell me anything. We tried
4: to sell years ago a Federal Express uniform program and we didn't get it. And the guy that ran the division that didn't get it, I said to him, well, I want to call up uh, the uh, person that you made the presentation to, and you and I are going to go down there and see them and find out why we didn't get the business. Mm
1: -hmm. And we,
4: and she was, and it was a lady, she's very, very open with us and we learned a lot. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's
0: great. Like Lori always says, the the answer to every unasked question is no. (laughs) Well, you know, Bob, you, you, you were there for a long time. You, you have a storied career. You, you exited gracefully, and then you decided to write a book, and that's not easy. Why on earth would you decide to write a book?
4: Well, uh, as I explained to you earlier on, uh, I have been asked to write a book many times, uh, and I finally had an experience where uh, of someone on a private equity board that I sit on, uh, uh, sent me a book by a guy. About, it was about a guy named Bill Campbell. It was actually written uh, by three people he mentored, uh, and one of the persons he mentored early on was uh, Steve Jobs of Apple. Uh, he, all these people were in, in Silicon Valley, and uh, the book was called "A Trillion Dollar, Trillion Dollar Coach." And uh, the book, the book was I, the way the book was organized was was uh, really. Uh, I thought, great, and uh, I said to myself, I've thought about writing a book for years, I should do this. And so uh, I began to do it, and I I would say the other reason is that I feel so blessed to have gone to work for a company in 1967 that had sales of a million six, that today has sales of eight billion, that had 62 employees when I started, that today has 42,000 employees, and I was a, not the only person that did that, but an integral part of it. And I've been very blessed to learn a lot of things uh, in that 50-year career. And I thought to myself, you know, I should not go to grave, to the grave with all this knowledge in my head. I should put it in a book for my family and for my friends and for anybody else who has the same challenges I had in my career. And hopefully it will help them do a better job. And so those were my two motivations.
0: That's fantastic. So, So the book... The book is composed of, of three big sections. You talk about culture, you talk about talent and you talk about leadership. Um, let's talk a little bit about talent because I know a lot of, a lot of the folks here in the bartender community are HR folks or their talent acquisition or talent adjacent people. Um, and right now recruiting's tough. Mariah's a recruiter. She's, she's out there banging her head against the wall every day. Um, <laughs> when, when, when talent acquisition gets challenging, what advice do you have to folks that are out there in the trenches fighting for this limited supply of talent?
4: Well, uh, it's certainly difficult. There's no doubt about that in, in today's environment when there are far more jobs out there than there are people. But one of the things that we did many years ago was carefully studied turnover. And we quantified the cost of turnover, and it was by far the most, the largest number uh, of any cost that we had that was not on our operating statement.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: We, we figured out that the, if we had turned over a janitor, it cost us three thousand dollars. If you turned over a sales rep, it was over a hundred thousand dollars. You turned over executives, and it could be a half a million or a million dollars. Mm-hmm. And so we said. And then we started looking at why, what were the primary reasons for turnover? And we determined that the number one reason for turnover was we shouldn't have hired him in the first place. Mm. And, that, and that happened because we didn't focus nearly enough attention on whether or not the applicant was going to be compatible with our organization. Mm. The focus was more on is the applicant have the qualities and the experience and the knowledge to do the job. What is equally as important, if not more important, is will the applicant fit in our company? Are their values similar to our values? And so we created a program we called meticulous hiring. And to get a job at CentOS, any job, you had to go on somewhere between eight and ten interviews. All the people that interviewed you would meet and talk about their they their interview. You'd be shocked at how many times an applicant will answer the same question in a different way. Share <laughs> answers. Uh and if any one of those people said we shouldn't hire them, we didn't hire them. Mm-hmm. And so wow. you need to be extremely meticulous in hiring so that you bring the right people into your organization. And if you do that, if they not only have the skill set to do the job, but even more importantly, they're compatible with your organization, then the likelihood of them staying with your company goes way up. Okay. And so we really, really focused on that. And we measure turnover incessantly. And we put a dollar sign to it in every one of our plants and every one of our operations. And, uh, and we've gotten very, very good at it. And, and the, the other key is what's your engagement level? I mean, all, every company I know of does customer surveys. Well, we do employee surveys as religiously as we do customer surveys. Because if you have good employees and low turnover, you'll have happy customers. If you have bad employees and high turnover, I don't. You're going to have unhappy customers. It's simple. <laughs> and yet, so many companies haven't figured that out. We rank. The last time I was involved in this was about three or four years ago. We ranked in the top one percent of engagement scores of in the world mm. in our engagement surveys. And yeah. and so and then when we when we found we had a plant that didn't have a good engagement survey we would develop an action plan with human resources. What do you got to do to get that up? And if they didn't get it up in a couple of years, we had a new manager. It was that simple. And so I I think, uh, uh, you know, in our principal objective, which is to exceed our customers expectations in order to maximize the long term value for our shareholders and our our partners, that's what we call our employees partners. And we treated like we treated them like partners. I used to ask the question, what order do you put those three constituents in? Mm. Some people in the audience would say, well, customers, employees, shareholders. Shareholders were always last, unfortunately. (laughs) And I said, look, all three are equally important, but it starts with employees. You can't have happy customers if you don't have happy employees. And you can't have happy shareholders if you don't have happy employees and happy customers. So one begets the other, so to speak. They're all three equally important, but it starts with the people. And one of the things that I've been very, I was on the board of a college, chairman of the board of the college for a number of years. And I used to sit down with the dean of the business school. And I said, you guys need to teach about people. You teach about things. And the first thing you do is you get out and get a job. And in a year or two, you're a supervisor. And what are 80% of your problems? People. People. (laughs) You didn't didn't learn squat about that in school. And we need to teach that in school. How do you call somebody in your office? And chew them out and have them leave saying, "I got to <laughs> do better." Instead of leave saying, "I hate that sob." That's a skill. That's a skill you ought to learn in college. Most of us learned it by screwing it up three or four times. <laughs> that didn't work. You know? <laughs> and so the whole aspect of business is when 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 companies get to understand that people are not only their greatest asset, they need to treat them like they're their greatest asset. Then everything fits into place. It all works once you figure that out.
0: Love that. You said compatibility, and and this brings to mind, you know, um, the phrase that we in HR know very nearly and very dearly, and that's the the idea of culture fit. And when when somebody when somebody leaves the organization or gets let go, that's the thing we hear a lot. This person they weren't a culture fit, um, you know. And so, you know, I'm curious. In your book, you talk about culture essentially consisting of four essential elements. What are those elements and, and how did you get there? And how do we use that in this notion of, of, of looking for culture fit?
4: Okay, well, uh, it came about because many years ago, early in my career, I guess I was there maybe five, six, seven years, uh, our CEO at the time, Dick Farmer, our founder, called a meeting on a Saturday morning because we'd lost a couple of management people. And we sat down and we made a list of every management person we lost in the last two years. It wasn't a long list because we weren't a very big company. And we were discussing each one and about halfway, maybe two thirds of the way through the list, the head of HR said, well, those people want a culture fit. And we said, well, what do you mean a culture fit? And he says, well, we work harder than most companies. We don't work 40 hour weeks. We work 60, 70 hour weeks. We have, when we tell somebody to do something, we expect them to do it. We take goals seriously. We revere our customers. We cherish our employees. And these people came to work for our company, and they didn't have those things. They came from another organization that did it all together differently, and they couldn't adjust to our culture. And we woke, we realized at that point that the reason we lost those people is we shouldn't have hired them in the first place. And the reason we shouldn't have hired them in the first place is we had no systematic way of determining whether they were good culture fits for our company. Now, our culture consisted of four elements. First of all, our principal objective, I just mentioned, seeding our customers' expectations in order to maximize the long-term value for our shareholders and employees drove every decision we made in the company. The second part of our culture was our corporate character, uh, professionalism, honesty and integrity, rear the customer, cherish your employees, all those kinds of things, sort of what we were all about, how we went about doing our job. The third part of it was our management system, where we documented the solution to recurring problems and written policies and procedures, and that's the way we ran the company. Every organization had an operations manual. You followed that operations manual, although you could get an exception if there were an unusual situation. And the fourth part of it was ethics, a very carefully defined Uh, process to determine what is the right thing to do, Um, and so those four things were our culture. Now in the interviewing process, what we did is we asked lots of behavioral questions. We would ask situational questions. For example, some of them were, what's the toughest decision you ever made in your life? Mm -hmm. Tell me about it. Why did you do what you did? How did it turn out? Who's the best boss you ever had? Why?" Who's the worst boss you ever had? Why? Mm -hmm. In your last two performance reviews, what areas of improvement did your boss tell you you need to focus on? Tell me about those. Now, when we would do reference checking, we'd ask the former boss the same question. You'd be surprised how often we got different answers to those questions. (laughs) So all all of these were behavioral kind of questions. Here's the situation. How would you handle that? Here, you know, and so you'd learn a lot about a person when you ask those kinds of questions. I remember I hired, I was you know, at Xavier where I was on the board, I was asked to lead the task force to hire a new athletic director. And one of the, and they gave me a list of questions they were all going to ask. And I said, well, these aren't, these aren't good questions. I don't know. <laughs> one of the questions I asked the guy was, I said, now let me ask you this. If you, it it seems to me that the job of an athletic director, the three primary responsibilities are winning, doing things right, and and achieving the academic excellence of the of the athlete. What order? No pressure. No pressure. (laughs) Then I said to him, "What order would you put them in?" Oh. Good question and The first guy, the first guy, but well, well, uh, yeah, but that's a good question. <laughs> he, was, he was trying to figure out what answer I was looking for instead of answering the question honestly. And right away, I said, I don't like this guy. This, <laughs> I, I was the answer I was looking for. And every question you have, you've you know, often said that good, any good trial attorney never asks a question they don't know the answer to. That's true mm-hmm. in that interview, too. That's okay, right. The answer I was looking for was all three are equally important. You can't sacrifice one for the other. The guy that got the job gave me a better answer than I was looking for. He said, doing things right trumps everything. Winning and academic excellence are equally important underneath that. That was a better answer than I was even looking for. And so by asking those kinds of questions, you learn an awful lot about a person. Can they think on their feet? Are they quick? Do they give you a good answer? Do they try to give you an answer that you're looking for versus the answer they really believe in? And again, we'd have multiple people ask the same question. And again, you'd be shocked at how many different answers you would get. Um, And so the whole process of hiring is the most important process that you have. And it's easily to get worn down in the hiring process because you're busy, you're doing it often at night on weekends because somebody else got got a job already and you just can't wait to get it over with so you can get back to doing your job, okay? And I used to say this, when I hired somebody I was really excited about, I was still wrong 25% of the time. When everything fit, I was still wrong 25% of the time. But when I hired somebody I was lukewarm about, I was wrong every single time. <laughs> Don't you ever hire anybody you're lukewarm? Oh. About. Yeah. Sage words Sage, right there. I was just gonna <laughs> say that. I just, and, and so, we've all been there, haven't we? Yeah.
2: So so it's interesting to me hearing you um kind of share these these frameworks and these um very well-thought out processes that were understood across the organization and were, were vetted with data about turnover and all of those pieces. And I you know, I don't know about the, the rest of you here on the call and your experiences with being part of organizations. Um, I know being in HR my whole career, so many times we are the voice of all of those things and we feel like we're pushing a rope up a hill to try to get the organization to adopt what we know to be true, what we know works, and so for one, I just I just appreciate hearing this kind of um, you know emphasis coming from somebody who was in in the role of ultimate influence, <laughs> because that makes those practices so much easier and so much, you know, people do what gets talked about, right? We talk about that all the time. And so, you know, hearing that orientation to this from somebody in the CEO chair makes a huge difference in the way you're able to actually enact that in an organization. So just, I mean, it was just something that I wanted to reflect to the group that, wow, cool. <laughs> I would have loved to have worked in your HR team, right?
4: <laughs> <laughs> and, Corey, one of the things that we preach to our HR team is your job is not to be the mother confessor. Your job is not to catch fish. Your job is to teach people how to fish. So right. when somebody comes to your problem, you say to them, you should go to your boss, and then you should go to their boss and say, now, here's how you're supposed to handle that problem. Okay, because once they start coming to you and they circumvent the boss, it's over. Right.
2: Yep. Yep. And that's why we you know, and I and I am very grateful to work for the CEO I work for because he also understands these things. Um, And and that's why we have a, a business partnership model for our HR team is because we are consultants and advisors. We're not the police and we're not the make it awesome for everybody. Put your monkey on my back, (laughs) take your complaints kind of, kind of operation, right? It's a, it's a different orientation to that. So yeah, that, I think that's, that's important. So, so my question for you, Bob is, this is also one of my, my favorite interview questions, right? yeah look out Bob
0: look out right right so
2: so tell us about a time that you really skinned your knee on something that didn't go well that you had a great learning from right how did how did you gain all of this wisdom How, how did you become this sage were there things that you tripped over in order to learn them
4: well, uh, many, I mean, how much time you got? Um, I would tell I would tell you what well, this is in my book too. The only people I know that don't make mistakes, are people don't do anything. Okay. The people, the people you worry about are not the people that make mistakes. The people who make the same mistake over and over again, those you worry about. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've made tens of thousands of mistakes, but I learned from those mistakes. I didn't repeat those mistakes. I also was very blessed to have a great mentor. That when I was struggling with something, I could go to him and say, you know, hey, this just happened to me. What would you do?
3: Mm-hmm. So there,
4: there was no one giant boo-boo that, that, that I ever made. But there yeah. were what, tens of thousands of small boo-boos I made. But I learned from them. I think you have to learn from your mistakes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and you're going to make them. And, uh, and so I, I think uh, it, as long as you recognize what did I do wrong, how do I avoid doing that again? I remember one time uh, I was talking to a customer and I said something. And at, at the end of the meeting, Dick Farmer called me aside and he said, Bob, don't ever do that again. I said, what do you mean? And I said, well, when you, when you told this customer that they had a problem, mm-hmm. that was the w- wrong thing to say. And I said, well, what do you say? And he said, what you say is he called it fair fine you come in from the side you say well, i don't know whether you had this problem but this customer over here that we had we found this and they had this problem now you may you may or may not have this problem so you come in from the side because when you criticize them you're criticizing their decision and and they're going to get the, on their high horse like who is this little young son of a gun here telling me that i don't know what i'm doing and so, but then that, and I've made tens of thousands of mistakes like that. But every time I did it, I had fortunately I was with somebody who knew what uh, what should have been done, coached me on how to do it right, and I listened. Yeah. And one of the one of the uh, the things that uh, Dick used to say he admired most about me is he said I listened. I listened to people who had been there before. I sought their opinions. OK, yeah. I, and yeah. my, my father was a great teacher, too. He said to me one day, Bob, you have two ears and one mouth for a reason.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's, awesome. that's awesome. That's such I think that's such a key differentiator in, in leaders is people who can ask for feedback, who can seek mentorship, who can show up with humility. To say, I screwed that up, or I think I probably screwed that up. Can somebody help me out here? Because that, um, you know, that that's, instead of going through life with your blinders on, that, you know, I must be fine, because nobody's telling me anything different. You know, probably is Toilet
0: paper all over your
4: shoe. <laughs> That's
2: right. You're dragging the whole <laughs> roll behind you.
4: <laughs> I think I think the key word is humility. I think you have yeah. to have humility to be a good leader, a good boss, and yeah. uh, people respect that. Yeah. And, you know, if they're willing to say, "Hey, I, I messed that up. I was a big mistake. I shouldn't have done that. I'll never do that again."
2: Mm-hmm. And so,
4: uh, people respect that.
2: They do. Yeah. We always talk about, you know, the. <laughs> We're, we're big fans of Brene Brown in this in, in this crew, and she studies vulnerability and this idea of of being vulnerable actually demonstrates immense courage. It's not weakness. And so we, we hold back in that vulnerability because we fear that we're going to be seen as weak because we said I messed up. But when you ask people how they receive that kind of vulnerability, it's always seen as courage. It's always seen as the right thing to do, as, as building trust and respect. Yeah. People
4: are willing to admit they made a mistake when they have the confidence they know they can fix it. When they don't have the confidence they know they can fix it, they try to hide the mistake.
0: Mm. Or, or if they don't feel empowered to, to try to fix it, right? I've, I've seen organizational cultures that squish people down. For making mistakes even right. though they say even yeah. though they say fail fast learn from it <laughs> they they somebody fails they do a post-mortem they figure out whose fault it was and that and dude they is gone
3: <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> they,
0: they wear the cone of shame <laughs> um, hey, I want to open it up to questions. Um, I've seen Mark Russell nodding his head like a bobblehead doll over there. Um, so I'm sure Mark's got a question or two. Anybody have questions for Bob before we start to wrap it up here today?
3: I don't have a question, but I'll share uh, some some thoughts based on having just gone through an interview process myself. <laughs> A number of different roles, so this is not specific to uh, to Cable Labs, but I would say um, in my recent experience as an executive level person being interviewed, I had the most positive experiences um, with the leadership teams and the HR professionals who asked the type of questions you were suggesting, Bob. I I thought that led to a much richer interview and engagement process. Um, And it made me feel as if this was really a two-way street um, and that the the employer was um, not only trying to um, consider you, but they were giving you the opportunity um, to to showcase yourself and learn about their culture based on the, the questions they asked. Some of the less positive experiences i had were when um companies focused on the, the substantive pieces of the resume and highlighting what's missing what don't you have as opposed to i mm-hmm. think there if you've let someone in the door for an interview um, you should be comfortable with what's on paper and use the opportunity to get to know the person better so mm-hmm. um, i just wanted to say i very much agree
4: with what you shared you know, we had we wrote a book about our culture. It's called the Spirit is the Difference. And every applicant I would interview, I would give them that book and I'd say, Why not you read this? And we're going to get back together and we'll talk about it. Wow. And they'd do that. And uh, I'd, I'd say to them, Do you have any comments or questions about that book? And every now and then, one would say, No. It was the end of that discussion. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Goodbye.
4: <laughs> that means. It, 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 they didn't read it or it turned them off. One of the two. Um, and uh, and, and, and the, the gratifying thing, I guess, about our company is I can't tell you how many times people would read it and say, "Boy, this is great. This is how I think a company ought to run. And uh, they would come to work for us. And believe it or not, I, 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 you can count on more, more than two hands. The number of times somebody would come back into my office three or four months after they came to work for us. And they say, Bob, you know, you gave me that book, and I read that book, and I thought, this is utopia. They can't really run the company this way, but you really do, <laughs> and it's fantastic. And so that really made, that was sort of reinforcing to me that it's working. And, uh, and so uh, I, I think uh, the whole culture part of it is critical. And, and, and one of the things you need to do is, I think if you're a good applicant, you do some research and you ask good questions. And if you don't ask good questions, That's that's a a big one of these for me. If the person doesn't want to know more about you and about how you operate and about what you believe in and all those sort of things, then they really not, they just want a job. They don't want a career.
2: Yeah, I always I always tell hiring managers pay very close attention to the questions that they ask,
3: yeah.
2: right, and the order in which they're asking them. Right, is their first question how does PTO work? What's right?
0: the vacation policy? How many sick days do I get? <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly, Mr. Russell,
0: you got a question? So quickly, Bob. First off, thank you for all
1: the insights and the uh, affirmations, but uh, certainly. Healthy conflict within a leadership team is good. How did you possibly navigate when there was a little unhealthy conflict uh, with maybe your senior leadership team?
0: Great question.
4: Well, uh, I, I remember one case where we had uh, the head of engineering in our company, and I talk about this in a book. I don't use his real name because everybody, everybody still works here would know exactly who I'm talking about. I found out that we'd have an executive committee meeting. And he would sit there and not say a word. And after the executive committee meeting, he would start talking rousing about a decision that I made,
3: mm-hmm.
4: and telling everybody, "I don't know why in the world Bob's doing that. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard of. It doesn't make any sense at all." Well, I had a relationship with our people who was such that I, they came to me and they told me this, and I called him in my office and I said, "Look, I want you to understand something. We're after what is the best decision. Doesn't mean he never told it's my decision." or it's your decision, or it's somebody else's decision. When we're in the process of making these decisions, I want you to speak up. Don't worry, I'm not gonna get mad at you if you disagree with me. Do it respectfully, I mean, don't call me an idiot or whatever, but I I wanna know what you think. (laughs) Don't talk about it after the meeting. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had that discussion, I will admit, he got better, but he never quite got it, because it just wasn't wired that way. And this was one of, he never was successful in his job, and the reason was, he avoided, and, and this is a human nature thing for a lot of people, avoid conflict. Mm-hmm. And he felt like if he brings up in a meeting, and I disagree with you, Bob, I don't think we ought to do that, I think we ought to do this, that that's conflict. And he avoided conflict. And that therefore, he had problems with suppliers, he had problems with the people who worked for him, because, because he wasn't honest about it. And so that I remember that case particularly, and I really can't, I didn't come down on him hard. I just told him, I want your help here please don't think something in your head and then go talk to other people about it after the meeting. Talk about it in the meeting. Maybe the whole rest of the room agrees with you. How do you know unless you bring it up? And so those kinds of things happen from time to time. Uh, uh, But uh, they weren't that frequent, but yeah, there were times when I had to confront somebody with something like that. And sometimes Mm -hmm. they reacted well and got it fixed. And sometimes they didn't.
0: Yeah. Love it. I love it so much. Good stuff in there, Bob. Thank you so much for being with us here today. I don't know about you guys, but my takeaway is here: we create an environment for feedback. Right? You got to create that. You own that as the leader. Uh, the answer is not in your office. That's my favorite one of the day. <laughs> and the thing that ruby called the eric move come at it from the side that's that's awesome come at it from the side so big ups to bob thanks for being here with us today that's been awesome um bob how should people whoa easy tiger how should how should folks how should folks get a hold of you if they want to reach out for for more of your wisdom
4: well uh they can get a hold of me like My my Email address is R-J-K at XAMASS.com. Uh, I have a website, robertcolett.com, that has uh, all the podcasts I've done and all the articles I've written, and you can order my book that way. You can also order it from Barnes & Noble or uh, Amazon. Uh, and uh, you know, I'd be happy to give anybody my phone number once. <laughs> I mean, as you can see, I enjoy talking about the topic.
0: I love it. I love it. Building a better organization is the title of the book. Bob Colehep is his name. Thanks, Bob, for being with us today. Let's get on to our funny things, our good feels and our semi-quarantine cocktail. Today's funny thing, number one, me (laughs) in a half hour meeting. This could have been an email. Me sending an email. Well, this took me all day. (laughs) I've been there. Been there. This, this, This one made me laugh boyfriend who dated 35 women and told each he had a different birthday so he regularly received gifts is arrested for fraud in Japan. And the tweet says he did nothing wrong. (laughs) Oh, today's COVID tweet. They should start naming the variants after the women from Mambo number five. (laughs) So now it's in everybody's head. I see Ruby dancing around. It just started. (laughs) Monica. Monica, (laughs) right? That's the next one. (laughs) Oh, this is one we can all identify with being HR people. Hey, we're short staffer tonight. Employee. That's crazy. Good luck, though. And the the cover of Karl Marx, Capital Volume One. Oh, this one made me laugh. I asked my genteel boyfriend to explain the point of Advent calendars to me. He said it's for kids to microdose Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and my favorite funny thing today, it's just a picture of Cinderella getting not the slipper, but a better shoe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, today's Goodfield story is about a mom and pop shop up in Norwich, Connecticut. So let's take a listen.
1: Steve Hartman this morning is all about taking care of business. Here in Norwich, Vermont, for more than a century, this general store has been as much a fixture in the community as the church steeple. But then that sign went up, screaming a desperate need in neon orange, a warning sign of an end approaching. Dan Frazier is the owner of Dan & Wits. How many openings did you have? (laughs) All of them. (laughs) All of them. (laughs) It was like, we're gonna have to lock the front door because we have zero help. This was your dad's business. This was your grandfather's business. Right. And it was gonna close on your watch. Yeah, which would be tough when you've invested your whole life into it. Customers were equally devastated. Of course, that happens whenever a small town loses an iconic business. But what sets this place apart is that these customers didn't just give Dan their sympathies. They gave him their applications. I'm
3: so excited to have you here. Well, it's so nice to be here. So this
1: retired finance director applied for a job in the deli. There we go. Dr. Rick Farrell is working checkout. I'm just trying to get the cash register to work. People from all over town and all walks of life in. punched in to help Dan stay open.
2: Yeah, I am. I'm a therapist, teacher, second grade teacher, professor of psychology, principal of the middle school. I'm an RN.
1: So far, nearly two dozen customers, like Diane Miller have stepped up
2: because
3: dan and wits is the heartbeat of this community it's the heart of our town
1: for some reason the heart of the town i really got this sense It's the heart of
4: this town
1: That dan and his store are the heart of the town and as if stocking shelves and running register weren't enough virtually all of these new hires are donating their hourly wage to some of dan's favorite charities dan says this has all been just the help he needed Absolutely. Um, the fact that the community stepped up, you know, I mean, sometimes it takes sort of a crisis, if you will, to appreciate what you have. Right, you? And in Norwich, they have what every town needs more than anything. Thank you. Each other.
0: Ah, oh, uh, nice. just like every week, I'm not crying. You're yeah. crying. <laughs>
2: I was going to say, so many tears in the good field stories. <laughs> I love
0: it. Oh, wait till you see the next one. The next one's going to kill you.
2: <laughs> so good, though.
0: So good. Today's semi quarantine cocktail is the you put your weed in there to oh, no. an old Saturday Night Live sketch. It's a riff. On an actual cocktail called the liquid marijuana that contains no cannabinoids, just so you know. Um, (laughs) Today, if you didn't know, is National Brownie Day, y'all. So you're going to need a little bit of spiced rum, um, an 850-pound brownie, (laughs) three-quarters of an ounce of melon liqueur, 20,000 milligrams of THC, some coconut rum, this thing is three feet square by 15 inches tall. A little blue, blue Uh Guinness does not accept cannabis related records. So this is not a world record pot brownie, a sweet and sour mix. And after the launch of they call this Bubby's baked, this brownie, a lucky medical marijuana patient will be the recipient. A little bit of pineapple juice to round it out. Yeah, they made an 850-pound, 20,000 milligram of THC pot brownie. That was the thing that happened. So there, semi-quarantine cocktail. You put your weed in there. Bob, (laughs) thanks for being with us today. You didn't know what you were getting into, and now you've survived. Thank you to everybody who was here today. So good to see you all. Wednesdays are my favorite days, and you guys are my favorite people. Have a good night, everybody. Have a good night. Get to dinner. See you later. Bye. <laughs> kill somebody with that brownie, and all. Right. Noticed, I noticed how happy everybody looks.
3: big smiles. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, you know how complicated it is to 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 get the 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 dosage right on a regular brownie. What I mean, what do you do with this thing?
2: Uh, Just dump the whole I shit mean, in there, Eric. That's where you go. Allegedly. Allegedly. Oh, yeah, allegedly. <laughs>
0: My friends I've have told both. me it's hard. <laughs> it's it's hard to know how much to eat.
1: <laughs> and, and Eric,
0: kudos to you, but you've got to drop one F-bomb or else would it would not be. Uh, they called the bartender. <laughs> oh, I know. Fuck, Mark. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you had a good time and learned a thing or two at today's happy hour, please share it with your friends. If you want to join our tribe, head on over to skyteam.cloud forward slash TCB or email us at info at skyteam.com. That's S-K-Y-E teamcom Thanks again. And remember, you've always got friends at the corporate bartender.